if you want to make your way on back toward your seats. We're going to we're going to continue on uh, this this morning uh, in our our year long Bible initiative. And uh, if you were not here last Sunday uh, to hear Bob Vogelar teach uh, on Solomon, I encourage you uh, to go on to our website to go to the podcast and. Uh, to take 25, 30 minutes to listen to that. He did a, he did a fantastic job uh, walking through the life of Solomon and what does reading that, where does it fit within the larger picture of the Old Testament, but also what can we pull out of that for ourselves today? What does it look like to uh, press into a relationship with the Lord? He, he did a phenomenal job. I encourage you to go check that out. We're going to move forward into what is the next... Uh, uh, not full-blown era, but the next piece of Israel's history, which is that uh, the kingdom of Israel, the people of Israel, are going to split into two pieces. And so I want to I run us up to there really quickly. We've looked at this chart multiple times over the course of the year thus far. Uh, but it's important whenever we get to significant changes uh, in the Old Testament to just remind ourselves how we got there. And so we began with creation, uh, and within that era, those first 11 chapters of Genesis, we not only saw God create everything, uh, we saw the creation of humanity, but we also saw the introduction of sin, the entrance of sin into the world. Uh, We saw the flood and God's judgment over that and the scattering of all of humanity all over the earth. And then the next section, the rest of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 on concerns the patriarchs or the fathers of the Israelite people. It begins with a man named Abraham that God makes a promise with that through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and that Abraham is going to have a land. His people are going to have a land that's given to them. And then Abraham's son Isaac is the next father, and then uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph is used by God to take the Israelite people into the land of Egypt, where they're placed in bondage for uh, a long period of time. And the story of Exodus is the story of God delivering his people from that slavery uh, through powerful acts and the Passover. And they go running out of Egypt across the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is swallowed up in the Red Sea. Then they wander in the desert for 40 years while a generation of Israelite people pass away. And they receive the law there. They arrive on the banks of their promised land. Uh, And Joshua is the man who leads them into the promised land. And once they arrive there, they're supposed to clear out all the inhabitants of the land. They do a fairly decent job uh, of doing that. And yet they leave little pockets of Canaanite people in their promised land. And it's those pockets of Canaanite people that end up oppressing them and forcing them uh, into some sort of servitude or... Uh, fighting with them in some sort of way. And so the people cry out for someone to save them. The Lord gives them judges. In the book of Judges, we see this cycle of the Israelite people being oppressed, crying out for a savior, being delivered by a judge, and yet then falling back into uh, a sin of idolatry. And so they're handed back over to another nation. And so that cycle perpetuates itself. And then at the end of that, the Israelite people cry out for a king. A judge is not enough for them. They want a king like the nations around them. And so God gives them kings. 
And for 120 years, the people of Israel are united in this kingdom under three individuals. The first is Saul. Saul's reign lasts about 40 years, and he's unfaithful in the midst of it, so he's removed from the throne, and God finds a man after his own heart, David, who rises up and uh, leads the Israelite people for another 40 years, and when David's life comes to an end, David's son Solomon rules. And when we get to the end of Solomon's reign, and his son Rehoboam is about to take over the kingdom from his father, there's a decisive moment that takes place. The kingdom splits into two, a northern chunk and a southern chunk. There's a map inside your blue book. It looks like this. In the north, ten tribes of Israel band together, and from this point forward in the Old Testament, as you read, they're referred to as Israel. And then two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, come together in the south, and from this point forward in, the, in your reading in the Bible, it's referred to as Judah. And so up to this point, when we've talked about Israel, we're talking about all of God's people. But from this point on, when the Bible talks about Israel, they're talking about 10 tribes of that that are in the northern portion of the promised land. And then Judah, it's two tribes that are in the southern portion. Jerusalem, the city, is in Judah. And so what you're reading is this coming week is going to be Uh, about a succession of kings that rule in Israel, the north. And the text in the second part of 1 Kings and throughout 2 Kings gets a little bit hard to follow because it just jumps back and forth, rapid fire, from a couple kings in Israel, then down to a couple kings in Judah, then you'll get an extended chunk on one particular king in Israel, and then you could have four or five kings in Judah, and it kind of tells you who's ruling in the other place, but it's fairly confusing to keep up with. And so we made a decision to try to make it a little bit easier to follow for you that this week you're just going to read kings in Israel. And so you're going to jump. You'll make some leaps at times over some kings in Judah because next week when we read, we're going to do all the kings in Judah. And so we tried to keep it in line for you so you could see the way that this progresses in both the north and in the south. It's also during this period of time that all the books of the prophets fit in. During the the time of the kings are when God begins to send prophets who proclaim to Israel and to Judah that judgment is coming if they don't return to the Lord. And so if you were to flip back to uh, the second half of your Old Testament, you would see a list of books that have people's names. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Those are prophets. They're a bunch of smaller ones. They fit into uh, this era of the Old Testament. And if you pay attention to our podcast channel, later this week we're going to put out a podcast that specifically addresses just the prophets and where they fit in and how their lives work into this era of the Old Testament. So you can look for that later in this week. We're just going to look at kings in the north right now. And so I just want to walk through kind of the... Israelite kings in general. And see, this is what happens. Israel wants a king for themselves. It actually happens all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel is the the priest, the prophet in Israel at the time. The elders of Israel gather around him and they say, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king who can rule over us like all the nations. You see, what Israel thinks they're going to get in a king is a leader and a guide. They think they're going to get a protector, a 
provider and a sustainer. And they see that in these nations around them. And they say, you know what? It'd be pretty good for us to have one of those too. Unfortunately, though the grass may always look greener on the other side, the water bill's higher. So there are some negatives that come with having a king as well. In fact, God warned the Israelite people, all of his people, all the way back in Deuteronomy, what would happen if they got a king. He's going to force your sons into service as soldiers. He's going to take from you some of your goods. He's going to acquire for himself all of the wealth of your nation. He warned Israel about that. And yet, nonetheless, in 1 Samuel, they cry out for a king. And sometimes, you'll, we'll see this throughout the Bible, that God will give his people exactly what they want in order to show them that what they want is not what they thought. And that's what begins to happen here as we roll through these kings. You see, what comes next is that the Israelites not only want a king, but then they decide that they want to choose the king. That's why the kingdom splits between Israel and Judah. It happens in 1 Kings 12, verse 20. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is set to be the next king, and the people don't like that. And so when all Israel heard that Jeroboam, another man, had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah. So there's the split. The Israelite people say, wait, 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 I understand that Rehoboam is supposed to be king, but we want to pick our own king. And in fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy where God talks about what will happen if they ask for a king, he actually told them, you're going to come to your land and you're going to ask for a king. This is Deuteronomy 17. And I will relent and I will give you one, but let me choose him for you. And he lays out what it is that God would want in a king that rules over his people. And you know what the primary uh, descriptor is of that person? God says he's going to be an individual who will take the book of the law and will study it and will know it and will lead you to be faithful in worshiping me. That's what God wants for a king over Israel. That's why when Saul begins to fail at that, he seeks out David, a man after his own heart. And then David receives this promise that someone from his family is going to be on the throne forever. And his son Solomon is next. And then Rehoboam should have been after that. But the Israelite people say, we not only want a king, God, we want to be able to choose our own king. Really what the truth of Scripture is all throughout the Old Testament is that not only do the Israelites want a king and they want to choose the king, the reality is that the Israelites want to be their own king. And what happens in the northern kingdom of Israel throughout this era of Scripture is that one man after another rises up because he thinks he could be a better king than the person that's currently there. And it just cycles through. It is a murderous, uh, bloody, contentious era in Old Testament history. As one individual after another decides, you know what, that person shouldn't be king anymore, I'm going to be king. And so they gather up a group of people, a group of followers, and they dispossess the person who's currently ruling. What the Israelites fail to see is that God is the king. That's always been his desire. If we were to 
just briefly step back through the history of the Old Testament, God is the creator. We saw that in creation. He is their deliverer. We saw that in Exodus. He is their leader and guide as he proved to be faithful in doing all throughout their wandering in the wilderness. He is their provider and protector, which he displays as they conquest the land. He is their savior repeatedly as he brings judges to save them from their oppressors. He's also their sustainer. What they wanted in a human individual, they had in the Lord. And if they would have relied and have just rested in that reality, they wouldn't arrive in the place where they do over this coming section of Scripture. And there's a, there's a broader picture here that I want to just relate to us today for a moment. You see, we all want a Savior You can make no mistake about it. Whether you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a Christian or not, we're all looking for the thing that's ultimately going to save us. But you might not use that word save. You would maybe use a word or a phrase like, you're looking for the thing that will ultimately make you happy or give you purpose or bring you peace or make life more comfortable or help you feel like you have worth. We're all searching for that thing. We direct a vast majority of our energy and time toward that end. But not only do we want a Savior, we also want to be able to choose what that Savior is going to be. We want to pick what God must be like. We want to choose the terms by which He is to govern the world and move in our life. We want to dictate the characteristics of who God is and what His character must be like. We want to choose the terms by which we come to Him and what sort of impact it is that He's allowed to have on our life. Voltaire once said, If God has created man in His image, we have since tried to return the favor. We want to choose our Savior. The deeper reality is that We want to be our own Savior. By the way that we live, we often function as if we're the thing that's going to save ourselves. And oftentimes, before we understand the gospel, we're not even sure what we need saving from. We just know that there's something inside of us that's not content, that longs for something more. And we want that to be fulfilled. We want that to be met. And so we want a Savior. We want to pick If it is God, what God must be like. But ultimately, we kind of think to ourselves, I want to be the one that saves me. And even after we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we kind of functionally still live that way at times, as if you've got to behave your way into being saved. Even having placed faith in Jesus Christ, we often think to ourselves, I've got to do certain things or act certain ways in order to continue in his love for me. Which simply is not the case. We don't get anywhere until we understand that God knows our need for a Savior, that He's not only chosen that Savior, but sent Him on our behalf, and He's made it possible for us to be freed from the weight of trying to save ourselves. That Savior's name is Jesus. And we're saved simply by the grace of the Lord through our faith in Him. What the entire era of the kings displays for us is that there isn't a human king in all of existence that can deliver and lead and guide and protect and provide and save and sustain. There have been thousands of kings throughout human history, not just within the Bible and the life of the Israelite people, but throughout all of human history, there have been thousands of kings. Some of them have ruled better than others, but none of them 
can do all of our delivering and leading and guiding and saving and protecting and providing and sustaining in any sort of perfect or fully beneficial way. There's only one king who can and has and will do that. His name is Jesus Christ. And in order to display for the Israelite people the truth of that, they get a string of really, really bad leaders. And in looking at them, there are some truths that we can, we can take away from ourselves this morning, or for ourselves this morning. And that's what I want to do. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up to 1 Kings 12, we're going to start there. And we're going to work our way forward from 1 Kings 12 through 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings chapter 12 was actually the end of your reading this week. And it begins with this first king in the northern kingdom. His name is Jeroboam. And he gets the whole king deal wrong right from the very, very beginning. So the first truth that we're going to take away from the kings in Israel is that you can't build firmly on a faulty foundation. You can't build firmly on a faulty foundation. You see, Jeroboam, worried about the preservation of his own kingdom, makes a critical error at the very beginning of his time as king. He's worried that his people in the northern kingdom of Israel will want to continue to go to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord, as if that would be a bad thing. And so for the preservation of his own kingdom, he decides to set up his own temples and places of worship. And he does it with these two golden calves. If you're in 1 Kings chapter 12, look at verses 28 and 29. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. Jump down to verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. That's where the northern kingdom begins, built on a foundation other than the Lord. And then king after king in Israel rises up behind Jeroboam. So we're going to walk our way through a number of these. If you can flip over to 1 Kings 15. I'm going to be in verse 26. The second king who, who rises after Jeroboam is a man named Nadab. In verse 26, this is what we're told. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, that's Jeroboam, and in the sin in which he made Israel to sin. Jump down to verse 34. The next king is a man named Basha. And in verse 34, we're told he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. First Kings 16, flip over a chapter. Verses 12 and 13 is about a king named Elah. We're told, Thus Zimri, Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. The next king is a man named Zimri, verses 18 and 19. Zimri's king for a whole seven days. The people aren't happy about what he did to Allah, the previous king, so they crown their own king, a man named Omri, and Zimri is so 
uh, distraught over it, this is what happens. Verses 18 and 19. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Why? Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of who? Jeroboam. And for his sin, which he committed, making Israel to sin. The next king is Omri, verses 25 and 26. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of who? Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. The next king is a man named Ahab. If the kings before Ahab have been bad, Ahab takes wickedness and evil to an entirely new level. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 16. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then parenthetically, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Are you seeing the pattern? Everything points back to the first king in Israel. He got it wrong from the very start, and then nobody could ever get it right. Things just went further and further south, and there was nothing that could be done about it because you can't build firmly on a faulty foundation. Once Jeroboam set the pattern for all the kings that would follow after him, there was nothing they could do in order to rectify the situation. Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He gives a parable of a wise and a foolish builder, and he says any other foundation other than a solid rock foundation built upon the Lord is ultimately going to cause your house to crumble. If you try to build on a faulty foundation, it will not stand. It may wobble around for a time, but in the end, it will ultimately tumble. Paul ends up saying that anything that's built on a foundation other than that of Jesus Christ at the end of all things will ultimately be burned up. It will not last. Takeaway number one is you can't build firmly on a faulty foundation. But here's the second one. As the king goes, so go the king's people. Let me run back through a few of these that we just looked at. You don't have to... Go with me. But the first king is a man named Jeroboam. He takes those two golden calves and he sets one in Bethel and one in Dan so the people won't go to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord. And then his son rules after him, Nadab. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the sin which he made Israel to sin. Bashah, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in the sin which he made Israel to sin. Allah comes next. Zimri destroyed all the house of Bashah according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Bashah by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Bashah and the sins of Allah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin. You see, The king is getting things wrong at the top, but it's not like anybody's standing up to him. You ever played follow the leader? 
You ever played follow the leader at a time when you weren't actually playing follow the leader, but somebody did a thing, and then you did the thing, and you went home, and your mom said, if they jumped off a cliff, would you jump off the cliff too? And you kind of thought to yourself, yeah, you know, I probably would. As the king goes, so go the king's people. You see, the issue in Israel isn't just that the king sins. It's that everyone joins in along with him. The inverse of this will be true as well. And we'll see that next week in the kings of Judah. Every once in a while in Judah, a king rises up who rules the people well. They'll find the book of the law. They'll read it in front of all of the people. And an amazing thing will happen. When the king turns his heart back toward the Lord, all of the people will follow. As the king goes, so go the king's people. When Jesus is living and doing his ministry, he announces at one point, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. If you understand that you're not the king of your life, that the king in your life is Jesus Christ and that he is the firm foundation upon which you stand, then could you make the same kind of statement for yourself that I cannot do anything of my own accord, I can only do what I see the king doing? That's a statement that as followers of Jesus, we should be able to make confidently, that our heart would proclaim that to be true in our lives. And so it demands the question, are you headed where the king is headed, brothers and sisters? Are you doing what the king is doing? Are you dedicated to the things that the king is dedicated to? Are you following where the king is leading? Does your heart yearn for the things that the king's heart yearns for? Can you only do what you see the king doing. It's not a question for the non-believers in the room. It's a question for the believers. As the king goes, so goes the king's people. So king's people. Are you headed where the king is headed? The soul-stirring, life-transforming, eternity-changing love of Jesus Christ on the cross ought to compel our hearts to follow him. I once read a story about a wealthy uh, northern businessman during the Civil War who has to travel to the south in order to uh, do a business transaction. And when he arrives uh, in a populous city, he gets off the train, and there at the train station, he witnesses for the first time in his life a slave auction. And he stands there, horrified, mortified by what he's watching play out in front of him as one individual after another is brought forward and then sold to the highest bidder. And at one point, he sees a 12 or 13 year old girl brought up to the front, and the price begins to skyrocket for this young lady, and he is absolutely disgusted by it as he stands there and listens to the comments that these wealthy southern men are making as they're about to purchase this young girl. And so he decides in that moment, I'm going to outbid no matter what anybody else in this crowd says. And so he just keeps driving the price up until finally there are no other bidders. And the auctioneer says that 
he is the one who's won. So he walks up and he takes possession of this young lady. And he turns to the person standing there and he says, take the shackles off. And the auctioneer says, I don't know that you understand how this works, sir. And he said, no, take the shackles off this young woman. So they undo her hands and her feet and he looks at her and he says, you're free. And then he walks away. And the young lady starts to follow him. And they get some way down the road and he turns and he says, I don't understand why you're following me. I don't, I don't think maybe you understood. I purchased your freedom for you. And she says, sir, you bought my freedom and I have nowhere else to go. How could I not willingly go with you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the king has purchased your freedom. How could you not willingly go where he goes? As the king goes, so goes the king's people. Last point I want to make this morning. The last thing you should see as you read in 1 Kings this week is that as the king goes, so goes the king's kingdom. God tells the northern kingdom exactly what's going to come for them. He actually does it 200 years before it will actually come to pass. In 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, shortly after Jeroboam has taken the two calves and placed one in one city and one in another, God makes this pronouncement. The Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scattered beyond them. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Exile is ultimately coming for the Lord's people. And it's not a popular notion in our time, but it doesn't change the truth that exile is exactly what awaits those who follow any other king than Jesus. Eternity out of the Lord's presence. If you're here this morning and you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I have a few encouragements for you. The first one is understand that you cannot save yourself no matter how hard you try. The second is that you need a foundation that is much firmer than anything you could ever produce on your own. The third is that that foundation is Jesus Christ and it's been made available to you by his death on the cross and all you've got to do is place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. The fourth is a warning. That on the other side of that equation is an eternity in exile away from the presence of the Lord. You see, but here's the good news. If you have placed your faith in the Lord, then it is not exile that awaits you, but glory instead. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, friends, you're destined for eternal glory in the presence of the Lord. Which means that you can take heart. You can follow boldly and courageously and committedly. You can give your life to going where the king goes in a dogged, sort of unrelenting fashion. Because you might live here, but you're a citizen in an eternal kingdom in the presence of the Lord. So don't grow weary. Don't stop running. Keep looking at Jesus the perfect and eternal king. 
we're going to spend some time in worship this morning. And I want to offer a couple of uh, opportunities for you. If you're here and you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to make the same uh, invitation that we make every week here. And that's that that could change today. You may be here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I do want a Savior. I understand that my life and my heart are missing something, but I've been trying to fill it with various things, whether it be money or career or family or relationships. It could be substance. That's not ever going to save you. And you can try to build on that faulty foundation for the rest of your life and ultimately you'll arrive at the end and it will burn up like Paul says. But this morning, there's an opportunity to step into a relationship with the true king who is your creator, your leader, your guide, your deliverer, your provider, your protector, your sustainer, your savior. We would love to spend time praying with you or talking with you about what that looks like. And during the next few songs, you can come find a uh, someone over here who would love to do that, or you can find myself or any of our staff members, and we'd love to talk with you more about what that means. The other piece of that is that if you're a believer, I want to challenge you to consider, are you headed where the king is headed? This is why it's so important for us to understand Scripture, not because we worship the Bible or because Scripture is some you know, fourth part of the Godhead or something, but it's because it's in Scripture that we see who God is, what He's done for us, and what that means for us. See, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that has implications not just for your eternity, but also for your today. That your life should look a particular way. You should be headed where the King is headed. I want to challenge you to consider that as we worship together. You can stand up. I'm going to pray for us and then let's sing. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and to hear from your word. God, thank you for the opportunity to spend time as a body of Christ worshiping you. Thank you for the opportunity to have our hearts challenged by the reality of who you are of what your son has done for us and what that means for our lives. God, my prayer is that if there are those here this morning who've never placed their faith in you, God, that you would move in their hearts today. God, I also pray that for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, God, would you continually challenge and convict us to go where we see the king going, to do what we see the king doing, to be passionate about what we know the King is passionate about. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.